0: Do that. Let me uh, begin by getting us oriented using a rough sketch of Jerusalem and Bethany in Jesus' day. I don't know about you, but when we're talking about places and distances and other things, I always like to have a sense in my head as to what it looks like. So, as you can see on the map, uh, on the left side is the city of Jerusalem. It's built on top of a mountain. Um, Those little parallel lines you see there are supposed to represent the slopes of the mountain with Jerusalem on the top. On the right side, you see the Mount of Olives. And between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives is the Kidron Valley. So if you're on one and going to the other, you go down and back up again. You see on the far right, you see the location of Bethany. It's on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. Now I did put Bethphage there because everybody would ask me later, where is it? But the thing is, we don't know exactly where it was. It was a very small village just somewhere along the road between Bethany and Jerusalem. In terms of distance between the two, it was roughly about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem, which means it was walking distance. And in the New Testament, we read about this week that we're beginning to look at, that Jesus was in Jericho, and he went to Jerusalem. We know he made at least one stop on the way, but the point is that the road from Jericho to Jerusalem went through Bethany and Bethphage. So with that, let's uh, remain seated, and let's read together our scripture today. It's from Mark 11, it's Mark 11 verses 1 through 11. So let's read this together. The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Scholars believe that Jesus spent the Sabbath in Bethany before he began his Passion Week. We use the term Passion Week, Passion talking about his crucifixion, but we talk about Passion Week to refer to the week that begins with his triumphal entry, And it includes a few days of teaching and confrontation. Then it has Jesus' last Passover meal that he celebrates. Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And it ends with his his resurrection. In John 12, we're told that Jesus was in Bethany six days before the Passover. And from what we can tell, the Passover is celebrated later in the week. So we believe that Jesus had his triumphal entry on Sunday, which was the first day of the week, and it was a regular work day on the Jewish weekly calendar. Their day of worship, their Sabbath, was Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. We count our days from midnight to midnight. Jews counted their days from sundown to sundown. And their Sabbath was the last day of the week. The reason we have church on Sunday is because the Christian church changed and moved the worship to Sunday because that's when Jesus was resurrected. Now, back then, Jews did not travel or work on the Sabbath, and once the sun went down and it was nighttime, you didn't travel then either. So if Jesus is in Bethany for the Passover, it makes sense then why it would be that he would have the triumphal entry on Sunday. Now we saw in the verses that Jesus borrowed a colt and in Mark, that's all it says, a colt, but he's not talking about a young horse. He's talking about a donkey and you notice that Jesus anticipated, you know, he's going to send two of his 12 disciples to go borrow the colt. And he anticipates that they're going to get questioned. And so his message that he tells them, this is what you need to say. If you think about it, it's pretty cryptic. Okay. And a little bit unusual. It was really, why, why are you doing this? Oh, the Lord needs it. Now, you and I don't get the significance of borrowing the colt. It's the equivalent today of taking somebody's car. So imagine somebody walking up to you, a stranger, and saying, Oh, I, Jesus needs to borrow your car. Can I have the keys? We'll bring it back. And what's amazing is that the people who owned the colt said yes. But this leads to a question, and I think uh, Bruce talked about it just a little bit. Why did Jesus ride on a donkey? Okay, why didn't he ride on a horse or in a chariot? Okay, notice the title of the sermon today. It's Worship the King, and Jesus is not just a king. He is the king. And so if Jesus, the king, is coming into Jerusalem, why isn't he riding on some magnificent animal? He does have a parade, by the way, of a kind. It's kind of spontaneous. So he does have this parade, procession kind of a thing going on. And you'll notice when you read all four of the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus never, quote unquote, corrects the people. He never tells them, oh, you shouldn't worship me as king. No, he accepted that worship because that's what it was. It was a statement that Jesus is making. But why was he riding on a donkey? Well, here's why. In the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah tells us what the king would ride. In Zechariah 9, verse nine. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So notice the words that he uses. Well, first when he says, daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem, he's talking about the people. He's saying, people, all Jews, live here. Rejoice, why? Because your king is coming. And this is in a time when the only king the Jews had was Herod and they never counted him as a king. The, the, The line of David had stopped in terms of being a king hundreds of years before this. Zechariah says, your king is coming righteous. So he's right and good in all that he does. Having salvation, rescue, but also notice, humble. Now, the people, as we're gonna see in just a second, the people know about this prophecy. They're responding to the prophecy. Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. Remember what we just read. Jesus is the one that decides he's going to travel to Jerusalem when many of his disciples and his closest followers were saying, don't go, it's dangerous. He says, no, I'm going. And then we just read, Jesus is the one that says, you're going to find a colt, a young donkey, you go get him because I'm going to ride him. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy from Zechariah. Now also it appears to be an Old Testament tradition that Jewish kings rode on a donkey. But the king that Zechariah is referring to is the Messiah. We're going to talk more about the Messiah in just a minute. And then we read from our verses that a crowd of people was shouting. There were people in front of him and people behind him. Well, where did the crowd come from? Well, remember that Jesus' Passion Week includes the Passover. And from what we can tell from writings outside of the Bible, but even with some what's in the Bible, it's very clear that many people came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Because Jerusalem was where the temple was. When I say many, it was hundreds and even thousands and tens of thousands would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And you read in John's letter about Jesus' life that people had heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, and that was a recent event. So in John 12 12, we read this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, talking about they had come to Jerusalem for the Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So the people went looking for Jesus, and they found it. He's on the donkey somewhere on the road between bethany and or bethpage and jerusalem and then what did the people do when they found him we read that the disciples took their cloaks and put them on the donkey other people took their cloaks and palm branches and put them on the ground where the donkey is going to go it's their version of the red carpet for jesus now So what they're doing is they're honoring Jesus. But this again, if you notice, I think in questions and then I try to answer those questions. Why palm branches? Well, let me speculate just a little bit. And I say speculate because I'm not 100% sure. But here's some pieces that to me fit together. We know that Jews minted their own money. We know that the Romans minted their own money. And the Roman money had a picture of Caesar on it, stamped on it. Well, that was forbidden for the Jews to do. So, as I understand it, to honor the Ten Commandments, when the Jews made their money on at least some of it, I believe they stamped a palm branch. Not 100% sure. But here's my thinking. If that's true, then I would not be surprised that if the palm branch was kind of a symbol of national sovereignty. If that's true, then there's a double meaning for using palm branches when they're honoring Jesus because they're looking for their Messiah. Okay, and that's the question then is what kind of king or Messiah were the Jewish people expecting? They know Zechariah's prophecy. They know other prophecies from the Old Testament. They're celebrating Jesus as king and remember he doesn't deny it at all. What kind of king were the people expecting? They were looking for a leader who would restore their country to its former glory and drive the Romans out. Let me say it again. They were looking for a leader who would restore their country to its former glory from the days of David and drive the Romans out. They would be their own country again. And they referred to that, me- that leader, that man, as their Messiah. So they're looking for the Messiah. And one of the reasons that they're looking and waiting for the Messiah to appear is that there's another prophecy from Daniel. And the people know that Daniel said from basically the time after the return of exile, there's gonna be so many years, and then the Messiah will come. He doesn't say it directly, but they can see and read and understand, and they know that that time, that wait, is almost over. They don't know the day, but they know that it's about over, and so they're looking for that Messiah. There's already been questions among the people. Is Jesus, is he the one? Is he the one we're waiting for? Now, let me remind you of something that happened sometime before this, not in Jerusalem, but in Galilee. There's a time where Jesus, when his, his uh, following was large, had thousands of people following him, and he's in Galilee, and he's out uh, away from town, and he's teaching, and he's been teaching most of the day, and he knows the people are getting tired and hungry, and Jesus is the one that brings up the topic of food. Jesus is the one that turns to his 12 closest followers, his disciples, and says, guys, we need to feed these people. What can you guys do? And their response was, blank look. Andrew says, oh, here's this little boy. He's got his meal, a little bit of bread and some fish. And Jesus takes that handful of food and he feeds 5,000, except it wasn't just 5,000. That's just the men. There were were women and children and he had baskets of food left over. And he didn't just do it once. He did it a second time with 4,000 people. So, Do you remember what happened the day after Jesus fed the 5,000 people? In John 6, verse 15, we read this. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people's response right then, they wanted, you're the man, they're gonna make him the Messiah, him the king, and what does he do? He disappears. So think about it, if you're a Jew, your country has been occupied for decades, 70, 80 years or more, by the Romans, and they're not nice people. Okay, they're, they're occupying you by force. You're not only paying local taxes, your city tax and your sewer tax and all the other stuff, you're paying the Roman tax on top of it. And you have this prophecy that somebody's gonna come, and what you've been told all your life is he's gonna come And he's gonna restore your country to its glory. And the Romans are gonna be gone. And you think Jesus is the one. So, not just in Galilee when he fed the 5,000, but on the road to Jerusalem, as he's riding on the donkey, again, that's almost like waving a red flag, saying, do you get the point? I'm coming as king. You can imagine that they are excited They remember that Jesus took that handful of food and he fed 5,000 people and Jesus before and after was healing people and what was the stir at that time Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead put those three things together and what do you have the best abilities of Messiah that people wanted could have if he's gonna raise an army so that they can gain their freedom, what better thing than to be able to feed them and to heal them, and if some of them die in battle, even raise them from the dead. Oh my goodness, he is so qualified to be their Messiah. So let's look at what the people shouted. I'm thinking this is what was in their mind. What did they shout, and we just read it in our verses, as Jesus is coming. First thing was, Hosanna! Now, you and I I might think that this is just a word of praise, and we use it as a word of praise, but it's more than that. We find the word in the Old Testament. In Psalm 118, verse 25, we read this. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Well, that first two words in English is one word in Hebrew. Hosanna means save us. So it can be both a praise and a request. Jesus, we want you to be the Messiah to come and restore Israel. Hosanna. Then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, that's also a quote from Psalm 118, the next verse, verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord whenever you see a quote like that, it's always good to go back and read where it came from and get the larger context. The psalm, which again, that was a song back then. Psalm 118 talks about the strong arm of the Lord. And I believe that when the people quoted it, they were understood this to be a reference to the Messiah. And then the people say, blessed is the coming kingdom of of our father David. If there was any question as to what they were thinking and hoping, it becomes much clearer. Okay, notice that word kingdom. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Okay, I think right here you have the hope of national restoration. They're hoping that this is the Messiah, he's gonna come and there's gonna be a revival of King David's glory. And they finish with Hosanna in the highest praising God. Well, they're saying these things thinking Jesus is the Messiah, and they are right. He is the Messiah, but he's not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. And so the people's wrong expectations set the stage for their rejection of Jesus later in the week. Now, let me just pause here, and this is not in my notes. They're not the only ones that get Jesus wrong. You and I get Jesus wrong, too. We have, these, <clears throat> we, have these ex, we have expectations, too, of what we think God ought to do, how he ought to respond to our being faithful and going to church or being a good person. We build whatever list you want. And so we get disappointed in God. We get disappointed in Jesus. Because he didn't keep his end of the bargain. Well, do you make deals with a king? Only if the king says yes. The king has already showed us what our relationship is with him. And he also shows us that he loves us greatly. But he's not one to be quick to make deals with us. So the people are expecting one kind of king, Jesus is another kind, and what kind is that? What kind of king is, was Jesus? What kind of Messiah? Well, this next slide, all of these words come from Isaiah. They're all about Jesus. First, he is mighty God. In Jesus, God has come to earth. The Jews didn't think that would happen. Not like this at all. He's also called Prince of Peace. And when we think of peace, I think we mostly think of peaceful circumstances between us, between people and groups of people. Well, that can happen, but Jesus' priority is peace between us and God because he knows that we're not right with God. He's just, he's righteous, which means he's right in what he does and he's good in what he does. He heals. Does that sound familiar? As you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? He says he's a shepherd. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. He's God's servant. Even though he's God the Son, <clears throat> he voluntarily places himself under God the Father's authority and if you read, like especially the book of John, he's always referring back to saying, <clears throat> God the Father sent me. I'm I'm what I'm saying and doing I'm doing with his authority under his authority. And God tells us that he delights in his servant. He's gentle. He brings good news. It's God's good news of his love for us and his rescue of us. He brings liberty from our sin. And then the last when he suffers from, this is from Isaiah 53. He suffers in our place. Now, another important thing to remember as we remember Jesus' life and death and resurrection is that all the events of the Passion Week, all the things that happened then, all happened according to God's plan. We already had uh, somebody read and reference this from, from Matthew 16:21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Notice how very specific he is with this. He's going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to suffer from the religious leaders. He's going to be killed and raised. And he says it more than once. And his closest followers were still surprised when it happened. Why, because they had been infected. They wanted, they knew that Jesus wasn't exactly like what the people were expecting, but they still wanted much of what the people expected. Even after his resurrection in the book of Acts, we're reading, they're saying, okay, Jesus, you've died and rose again. Now are you gonna restore? No, it wasn't like they were thinking. But, What that means is that all of the events of the Passion Week were part of Jesus' plan. He's in control the entire time, even when he's arrested and when he's beaten and when he's killed. He tells some of those around him during that time, he said, if I wanted, I could call a legion of angels and just like that, this would all be done. But he wouldn't do it because otherwise you and I wouldn't have any rescue. We also see it again in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, where the early Christians are praying. They're, they're already experiencing troubles with the religious leaders being told not to talk about Jesus. And they're praying and remembering. And in verse 27 and 28, they say this, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, Romans and the peoples of Israel, look at verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This was Jesus' plan, it was God the Father's plan. that all of this would happen. It was part of their plan to rescue us from ourselves, from our own sinfulness and selfishness. Now, Those of you who have known me for a while, you know I like movies. And so I want to give you an illustration from a movie because I think it so makes plain what this is. The movie is How to Train Your Dragon. If you've ever seen it, it's about Vikings in the time with dragons. And the main character is a. His name is Hiccup. Okay, that's not a good name. And he's with all of these big, brawny. You know, manly vikings, he is this skinny little toothpick kid. Weak and just can't seem to do anything right. When he tries to help, things go wrong. And early in the movie, after he tried to help and things went very wrong. His father's best friend is talking to him. And he says, Hiccup, it isn't just what you do. It's just, and he goes like that. And Hiccup says, oh, you're pointing to all of me. Well, there's a sense in which God says to you and me, it isn't just what you do. It's it's you. It's all of you. It's what you think and what you say and do and your motives. You're all messed up. You need to be rescued from yourself first and then from all the mess and evil that's outside of you. And this is all part of God's plan to rescue us from ourselves. But, and get, get this, Jesus' rescue cannot be separated from Jesus' reign as king. And too often we try to do that. We say, sure, I'll take the rescue, I'll take the fire insurance, but I wanna live my life here my way. Jesus' rescue cannot be separated from Jesus' reign as king. We call it the triumphal entry because it was the entry of the king into Jerusalem. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be king? What does it mean for him to be your king? And he is your king and mine, whether we like that or not. Jesus is king today. He was king then. He has always been king of the universe. And he's not a king who's a king in name only. It's not just a, you know a nice honor thing to have, he really is the king. Jesus is God the son, creator of the universe and our creator. And he rules today, some question that, because he allows mankind to rebel, including you and I. We have to make sure we include ourselves in that. But he also says, I'm allowing it within the limits that he sets. But because Jesus is our king, all of mankind including you and me, owe him our obedience, loyalty, and love. What's our first reaction? Rebellion, selfishness. Get this too. Our culture today not only tells us construct your own truth. Now our culture today says construct your own reality. In other words, in effect, what we're being told, be your own king. And that's appealing to us it is appealing to us but it's a recipe for trouble why because whatever reality you and I can dream up and try to go after at some point we run into God's reality and his is the true one it's a reality you and I have no control over you want an example We're in the middle of one right now, it's called COVID. So are you and I trying to build our own little kingdom? Or do we acknowledge Jesus as our king? Because Jesus is king, he is worthy of our worship. So again, question that follows, do you and I worship Jesus as king? Well, you know, you really can't answer that question until You answer this one, what does it look like to worship Jesus as king and follow him? To worship Jesus as king is to praise him for who he is. It is, to worship Jesus is to thank him for what he does and he is actively working today. It's to delight in our relationship with him as our king if you have that relationship. If it sounds unappealing, then you might not have that relationship yet but when your eyes are open and you see when you see yourself when you and I see ourselves as to who we are and what we really need then his rescue and his rule is a very attractive thing so if you don't have it you can you can have Jesus as your king to worship Jesus also means to value Jesus to spend time with him to share your life with him It isn't a matter of just, okay, here's an hour a week that I've given you, check the block, we're good. It's to share our life with him, to obey him in all things, to read his word to us, the Bible, to put Jesus first in our lives so that what Jesus wants is both our delight and our priority. Now, as my dad used to say, I quit preaching and I went to meddling, okay? Because when you understand worship, in that way. When you understand Jesus kingship as all encompassing, it means that you and I can't get away from him. But if we really understand who we are, we won't want to because his, his rule covers everything. Now, something that we often do, especially in the church, we're guilty of this. We'll take something like this description of worship and turn it into a to-do list and think, oh, well, this is how Jesus is, you know, how's Mark doing today? Oh, yeah, check, missed that one, check, check, check. Doing okay. Almost like it's a measuring stick. It isn't. It's not a measuring stick to see if we're worthy for him to give us good things. God gives us good things. The best thing he can ever give us is himself. But here is again, we're kind of holding these two things. Look how wonderful God is. Look at what Jesus has done at the same time, we realize that none of us can worship Jesus as we ought or as he deserves on our own. Has he put us in a place that where we're stuck and can't get out of? And the answer is no. What he tells us to do is ask. Not only ask God, would you come and would you forgive me? Would you change me? Would you? Maybe you might ask something like I did at one point. God, I have made a mess of my life. (laughs) I've tried to be in control, and I have just messed everything up. Would you come take control? Would you rescue me from me? Would you change my life? He did, he has, he will do that. So ask him, if you realize that you're not worshiping God, Jesus, the way that we ought, Jesus, I need help here. Would you help me work in my life so that I can worship you? And just as Jesus does for us what we cannot do in terms of rescuing us, he does for us what we cannot do through his spirit in us, helping us to worship him the way that he deserves to be. And our celebration of communion is a part of that worship. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for rescuing us. We thank you for being so patient and kind and gentle. Many of those words that were in the Old Testament that described you still describes you today. Lord, as we celebrate Jesus' death, his substituting himself in our place, Lord, help us to see how much you love us and care for us and help us to thank you and to delight in you as you delight in us.